It's said he went to live abroad for his health. I think he went for his spiritual health. I mean, it's terribly hard to be successful in British literary society and keep your head low enough. And Graham found himself his own space in which to function. And when he defensively began to compose the legend about himself, which I think he did, in a curious way, it was in order to offer a version of himself which would satisfy people. Welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Reflective Review. This time we're going to talk about The Power and the Glory, which is a book by Graham Greene. With me today are three guests, the first of whom is Louise. Dear Louise, who's a friend of mine from church. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> And returning for his second podcast this week is St. Nick. Pleasure to be here on again. <laughs> Last but most certainly not least is my dear friend Steve, who is a chaplain at Chaplaincy Plus, an organization which I revere and respect greatly. Thanks, I, Cedric. Today we're talking about Graham Greene. Louise, why don't you tell us a little bit about Graham Greene, because you taught Greene in, in school. Yeah, I have. Green became much more popular in school and the syllabus, probably from the 70s. Before that, he was not well regarded, certainly not for teaching schools. I regard Green as probably one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. We know already, probably many of us, he's the great exponent of the Catholic novel. Mm. We probably know a bit and we can say more in a minute of why that is. He was born in 1914. He grew up in, in England, down in, in the South. He is also as, has as much experience as a traveller, as a writer. He didn't actually become a travel writer, but he used his experience travelling in many, many countries extensively in the novels. And that will come out again when we're just in discussion this evening. He, the book itself was set in Mexico. Indeed it was. And during a period of prohibition. Right. Yes, the Catholic Church was banned by the, the President Calais actually banned the Catholic Church. All religious observance was... This is during the period of Christeros. Not, I don't know much about it, except that it happened in the 30s and that it was very bitter. The Power and the Glory, what a book, uh, tells the story of the last priest. In the midst of this anti-clerical purge, the priests had two options, either get married or be shot, essentially. This whiskey priest, as he's called, is the final one who refused to marry but still was on the run from the authorities. That's a lovely expression, whiskey priest. Mm. There's more than one whiskey priest in Grey and Green novels. There are spoiled priests. Uh, there are priests of different descriptions. Spoiled priests, ones who didn't quite make it. Spoiled priests have been thrown out of the church. This priest in, in this novel, who we don't really know who he is, actually, who, again, is such a heavy drinker, but that's a good expression, whiskey priest. And it's so apt, isn't it, to describe how that might be for him. Indeed, which leads us nicely into our first quote from Miss Louise. Well, I have a number, but the first one is fairly short, but it's so evocative, and it is from the middle of the novel. And I forget who it was said by. I think it was just narrator. I think it was just Green. Hate is just a failure of imagination. Mm. And I thought that, to me, that's quite profound because I don't recall seeing that said or written by anyone, anywhere else. You can guess in some ways what it means, that people who are narrow and have no imagination 
you know, they will just be people who they're likely to hate because they know no better. And I guess that's part of what you think, Nick, about that. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. To love your enemies requires more imagination, yeah. more ability to put yourself in mm. very different shoes than yourself. A breadth of mind. A breadth of mind. Doesn't it? I think it's fascinating. It stood out to me when I read it as well, actually. And that doesn't happen with every line, does it? You know, in a book, you just lots of lines go missing. But actually, I love the idea that if you can be creative with your thinking, actually, you are able to really play with that concept of of hate and sort of anger and all of that stuff. Actually, yeah. So it's opening your mind up to to other options. Actually, hate is very narrow minded. And I think he's getting at that. It's also a failure of understanding. And that if you understood, if you had the breadth of mind to understand others and their motives, and you'd made it your business to do it, and which I think the priest does, then that wouldn't happen. I think he's trying to tell us that. Because you know later in the novel when uh, the priest is actually saved, almost saved, isn't he, by the the lieutenant? The lieutenant, yes. You are a good man. You are a good man. He he is actually a good man. Because, again, it's this, it's about... The imagination. Is he not really a good man? He seems on the surface, perhaps he isn't. But if you look at further and deeper. There's a lot of hate in the book, which is expressed in various guises. Yes. Especially by the lieutenant. Yes, and there are things, particular is- isms and things that each character hates. Mm. And they fear. Either they hate mm. or they fear, or both. And the poor peasants, they fear the police, they fear the state. Um, and that's a huge theme, actually, because I believe this is another theme for Green, the relationship of the church and state. That's right. yeah. And here it's exposed, isn't it? It's very naked. Yeah. In fact, the Catholic Church actually aided in the rebellion, in the Cristero Wars. They actually helped, assisted, gave money, gave, sent people into Mexico. Eric Idle once said that he was in favour of the separation of church and planet. <laughs> yes, now that's, that's quite clever. I'm sure Green would agree with that. Because I think what he's pointing us up here for us is that, in fact, the church is wrong to be doing this, to be involved in, in such a way. And I think he points that out. It's, it's simplistic, isn't it? That really they shouldn't be doing that. It's interesting. You talk about fear. And actually, I think what came across really strongly to me is the fear of God, yeah. both from the peasants, but also from the yeah. politicos and from the lieutenant actually mm. in different ways mm. but one particularly poignant moment where they're desperate for this priest to to hear their confession I, yes. that really stood out to me why okay. don't you give us your first quote Steve? yes do actually i'm fascinated by the lieutenant uh, in the in the story and there's a wonderful line that says says this he was walking back home after dark and it says this about him there was something of a priest in his intent, observant walk, a theologian going back over the errors of the past to destroy them again. (laughs) And here's a man whose job it is, as the book unfolds, to wipe out the church. Do you see what he's doing there? That's very deliberate. Very, very good. It's reversing the imagery. Exactly. And putting it onto the person we will perceive at the moment is the person suppressing all of that. Very clever. Very clever. What came to mind was Animal Farm. Yes. Ah, yes, right. George Orwell. And uh, the one tyrant, as it were, in inverted commas, being deposed by another tyrant. Mm, yeah. 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 
and quite often in this novel, people are not what they seem to be. We said already that about the lieutenant. But we've got people like in Graham's Green's words, the half caste. Yes, the mestizo. Uh, who is not either is not quite what he seems, and it turns out to be actually a very very dubious character. Indeed, yeah, despite indeed. his protestations to exactly. the to the opposite to be throughout, the very opposite thing. Even yeah. at the end, even at, even the, at end. the end. <laughs> so I think this is another theme in in the novel: is dishonesty yeah. and people not being honest yeah. with themselves and with others about who they really are. That's right. And and then I think he doesn't solve that question for us. I love the priest's struggles with his own dishonesty, the own dishonesty that he has with himself. And what's very clever in this book is that clearly Graham Greene has some misgivings about the church, but those misgivings are not expressed overtly. They are expressed through the dishonesty and the self-reflection of the characters. And his struggles, the priest's struggles, because I think Graham Greene is essentially anti-clerical. He actually dislikes some of the mumbo-jumbo of the church, these artificiality of it. I think what he wanted to do was get back to something more, more real, really, for people to believe in. And I think that also comes, comes out in the book. That he's actually against some aspects of the church. He's quite an anti-clerical, really. Quote from you, St Nick. So I've chosen something about the uh, lieutenant as well from quite early in the book, talking about when he's with the children and a description, actually. They deserve nothing less than the truth, a vacant universe and a cooling world, the right to be happy in any way they chose. He was quite prepared to make a massacre for their sakes, first the church and then the foreigner and then the politician. Even his own chief would one day have to go. He wanted to begin the world again with them in the desert. So I thought the first bit quite well described as quite a bleak, secular view of the world of a random cooling universe um it's quite one, powerful one where you can be you can choose how you want to live in yes happiness so it has a freedom but in a less meaningful way i suppose and then the last bit i think reflects how when people who are non-religious can be equally fanatical as extremes of religion massacring individuals don't matter and he wants to bring it, the world to an ideal to start yeah. again. Yes, and I think he's used children really deliberately. This is going back, taking it back now to, to children who don't know any better, perhaps. They're very young, they're not experienced and spoiled by the world mm. in the way that these characters are. Mm. Each one of them is very spoiled by the world. The priests, the lieutenant, they're all very spoiled. Completely, they've each experienced a kind of spiritual and emotional death, each of them. But the yeah. children haven't. No. And I think it's just trying to put that before us. That there may have been the death of ideals with these other people, but these are young and fresh, these are new. We should give them the chance. There's a, there's a lot about the purity of children yeah. and the despair at the potential future which faces them as a result of the regime. The cooling world, I think that's what it means. Yeah. I, I love that quote too. That was one of my mm. options. Oh, sorry. <laughs> this, this interesting idea that, that we picked up before, that actually the, the priest seems to be the one that's self-reflected, whereas this chap seems to be really idealistic, not thinking in any meaningful way about a moral consequence to his actions, mm. just trying to 
push forward a view that he thinks will solve a problem. Yeah, that's very astute because I think essentially the priest is the moral conscience yes. here, yeah. isn't he, in yeah. the whole novel. He's the yeah. against which things are, are sort of Dirt, tested against, yeah. But that particular quotation is, is very, uh, one I love to Saying that the priest is the moral benchmark, to us he's constantly in his mind thinking how dreadful he is. And yet, and, and yet, yes, he, because he feels he is. He hasn't kept to his vows, has that's he? Right. He's, yeah. he's got a daughter. Yeah, yeah. So he hasn't. holds himself to his own standards. To a very yeah. high standard. And yet it feels like this other chap doesn't mm. hold anyone to any standards. It's like, yeah. right, we feel this is yeah. right, let's just do it. Mm. Yeah. Yes, exactly, that's true. Yeah. And despite everything, he loves his church. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. he's alive to keep the church going. Yeah, this, is, this is in the double sense, isn't it? Politically, he's here. And as long as he's alive, he's keeping the church going. Mm -hmm. And he's keeping his faith going at the same time, despite all these challenges. And that's also then another contrast that Graham Greene brings out is a difference between hope and hopelessness. Yes. Mm -hmm. And big, and really a big, big thing through this thing. Oh, just just mm -hmm. when you hear descriptions of villages and the town, it just yeah. feels like there's a pervading sense of hopelessness. Yeah. Yes. Until he arrives. Until he yes. arrives. So my first quote actually follows well from yours, Saint Nick, because mine is about children. And it follows well from our discussion of the purity of children. And this is from Captain Fellows, who doesn't appear very much in the book, yeah. but he's the owner of the banana plantation at the beginning. He's the couple, isn't it? Yes, with the sickly wife. That's right. Afraid of her own shadow. So my first quote, talking about Captain Fellows' daughter. Her candor made allowances for nobody. The future, full of compromises, anxieties and shame, lay outside. And it skips a line. Mm. Captain Fellows was touched with fear. He was aware of an inordinate love which robbed him of authority. You cannot control what you love. You watch it driving recklessly towards the broken bridge, the torn up track, the horror of 70 years ahead. Hmm. Yes, that struck me. That's one of my quotes, actually. <laughs> I knew it would be. Well, the word has come back to me, moral compass. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's it. Close. And how it's thrown off by children yes, and, and by love. By huge emotions like love. An inordinate love yes. which robbed him of authority. Why do you think that is, that, that uh, Master Sarsky is just rhetorically, why would that love do that? Is it because love brings us to our knees? or what? You know, we're powerless against it. It's such a bizarre emotion. Mm. The things that I certainly have done in the name of love mm. are baffling. You think that's his view? Do you think that's Green's view? I do, I do. You know, he, he was a man of many loves. Mm. And so he knows better than anyone the things which love mm. drives a man to do. I think he also disliked artificiality and false emotions. And mm. for example, and it comes out in the novel Piety. Yes. He hates piety. Yes. Piety is False piety, False especially. piety. Mm. It means nothing. It's just people going through the motions. The fallacy of deathbed repentance. Yes, that's right. False piety. Because here, at the very end, we don't know what happens with the priest, do we? We don't find out. We're not close enough to see. We know he's executed, but we don't really know if he's really died for anything. Because, of course, straight afterwards, the priest comes to the child who's been reading the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's clever. It's not all wound up at the end. Because the lieutenant was almost convinced that the priest was good. 
foremost. They had a very frank discussion when they left the Mestiza. Well, so much so, at the very end, didn't he try to get his confession heard? Yes, by Padre Jose. Yes, Yes. by Jose. And again, that coming back to the lieutenant, that was because at the last minute he had had some insight in the end that I think he took the view he was a good man. Because I think we know, as readers, that Green's view is he was a good man. Do you think he suffers from the fallacy of deathbed repentance? Yes, probably. And I imagine that Green experienced it. Probably. Mm. He certainly had a number of false starts where his faith fell away a number of times completely and then came back. I think from what we can gather, and certainly from the novel, I think the priest is his sort of allegory, really. Mm-hmm. He may have stood his God, Green, because I think that comes out very much mm. in the priest. He doesn't understand his God, but he does believe and he does love the church, as I said before. What do you think, Steve? You cannot control what you love. You watch it driving recklessly towards the broken bridge, the torn-up track, the horror of 70 years ahead. My reflection, and maybe my children will listen to this, you know, is that true? That is absolutely true. And isn't it interesting how that idea of father and daughter relationship is mirrored in the priest's own relationship with his father and daughter? That was one of the other quotes that I'd underlined, where he stands after saying, what an emotional, what turns out to be final goodbye to his daughter, the priest says, one mustn't have human affections, or rather one must love every soul as if it were one's own child. Mm. The passion to protect must extend itself over a world. Interesting. And that idea of that incredible love that a father has towards his daughter Mm. or child is either irrelevant in the big scheme of things if this world is a vacant universe Mm. or incredibly powerful, the most powerful force that extends to every individual. So I think the allegory here is between us and God. Yeah. Mm. And it's also how the church could mean to us. I think sort of almost going backwards, he's also saying, but it's not the forms and the piety that matter. It's this actual relationship and the love. That's right. Do you think that's what he's saying? Yeah. That's what, what I was also thinking was, I suppose that this bit is partly why the Catholic Church has such a big task for priests of being celibate, which he, mm. which the main characters fail to keep. Huge commitments fail to do. Yes. Because you, you're supposed to love the whole world, and if you have very individual loves for your daughter, mm. then that affects in a way loving the whole world. And he's got a love for his particular area as well, feels an affection for that area and a need to save the souls in that area and stay and keep God in that area. God can love everyone, but it's very hard for humans to do that and not have particular loves. We all have our people we care most about, our parents and our children. I think that's, that's very apposite, especially in the novel. Where some of these people, these characters, are people who have died spiritually mm. and emotionally. Mm. They're beyond, haven't they? They've, their experience and their, the things that have happened to them have been so terrible. They've gone beyond that. And I think it's trying to show us that actually, despite all that, you can still come back. Because mm. the priest does in the end. I mean, he's, he's got all these moral failings, but he's still true to certain things. And that's one of them. That's a wonderful... Thing to take from the Louise, your second quote. Well, the next one I have then is, is short again, but I want to repeat it twice. When we love our sin, we are damned indeed. 
when we love our sin, mm. we are damned indeed. And that just jumps out. You think, what? What on earth does that really mean? He goes on to say more at it page does. 176. He yes. says, what was the good of confession when you loved the result of your crime? Yes, yes. Absolutely. So there are lots of uh, meanings behind that, I think. For me, anyway, it's all I'm taking from that. Some of them are about, again, the church and the nature of a person's relationship with the church. And I think it's even about your relationship with God. And, and yes, the meaning of, of remorse. And in the end, that all of our relationships must be directly with God. Only you will know, really, in the end. For some characters in this novel, even their feelings are obscured to themselves, aren't they? They're not quite clear on why they've done something or why it's happened. It's a very interesting observation. It's not clear. No. It's not clear. And it doesn't become very clear either, which is the beauty of the novel. It mm. doesn't wrap it all up for us as show, yeah. show, show, show. Yeah. We have to think about it. You do. And this concept that actually where is our first love? Yeah. And, and Graham, having seen or observed or thought about humankind and even within the church do they really have their first love towards god mm. <laughs> uh, what yes. is our first love is it even the church that's right i yeah. think it's contrasting and comparing human love and divine love yeah. and well, what are the differences and why, how are they similar yeah. well actually he, i think he's saying that they are very similar yeah divine love and human love are very mm. similar mm. and i think it's drawing that out they can be very similar this is very poignant for me because it's true. I think the fount of goodness comes from recognizing when you've done something wrong. Without knowledge of what you've done wrong, you'll never know how to do it right. But when you show no remorse for the wrong that you have done, that can be a problem. Yeah, when we love our sin. When, when we love we, our sin. You know, we just think that what we've done is fine. Of course, he's talking about his child. He's talking about the sin of fornication. Yeah. But this applies across the board. Now, of course, I've, as we all have, done things which I'm deeply ashamed of and wished I hadn't. Indeed, we have. And I'm remorseful for. But in a way, I do love my sin because I've learned from it how to behave. And that is an mm. odd take on it. But can we truly be revolted by our sin and hate our sin when our sin teaches us the correct way? The correct path. Yes, we can. I think you're saying <laughs> because, yes too. Because we mm. can hate yes. our sin, but still learn from it. Do you think? Yes. Okay. So I can hate my maths teacher, but I can still learn from him. Oh, I hated my maths teacher. The, you see? Okay. My maths teacher was sin in uh, No, he wasn't really. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess he's really talking here about the nature of evil, isn't he? Yeah. That the people who must be truly evil are the ones who don't care about or just, just quite like what they're doing. Mm. They will never have remorse. Those are, I think he's trying to tell us those are the people who are quite evil. I actually felt quite sad when I read that line. Mm. I hated the fact that he, probably like thousands of others around the world, that mm. may have children in circumstances that aren't ideal mm. or acceptable in their culture, to view the child as the sin. So you can't blame the child. You can't blame you can't the child, blame and the child, child is not the sin. The sin is the action that happened. 
And actually, I felt real, real sadness about that. That, yeah. that, that was, that was. I mean, obviously, it's Graham Greene's interpretation of, of that. You said it about using children. It's actually using them yeah. to mm. point up uh, something for us, to bring it out for us to see. And I think that's that's quite clever. The other theme I think we haven't yet mentioned is the one of connected, but the other side about mortality. Throughout. That's coming. That's coming. Oh, oh, really? Okay, I've, that's okay. coming. Coming. Good. It's on the way. That's fine. I'm happy for you to bring it out, Sidney. <laughs> Steve, second quote. Okay, mine's about love again as well. I mean, maybe this is just a common thread of the book. It's good. It shows that we're, we're you know, lovely people. It is, absolutely. Maybe that's what's yeah. jumping out. And it's the lieutenant again, during this conversation at the very end of the book. Oh, of course. And the priest is criticised. The phrase, God is love, is thrown at him. And he responds like this. Oh, that's another thing altogether. God is love. I don't say the heart doesn't feel a taste of it, but what a taste. The smallest glass of love mixed with a pint pot of ditch water. We wouldn't recognise that love. It might even look like hate. It would be enough to scare us. God's love. God's love. It set fire to a bush in the desert, didn't it? And smashed open graves and set the dead walking in the dark. Oh, a man would run a mile to get away if he felt that love around. Yes, that's amazing. Amazing. I love that quotation. We've talked about, you and I, mm. privately, about mm. the difficulty in feeling God's love. Absolutely. This priest is saying he fears mm. God's love. Mm. Absolutely. Because of its potency. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It has the potency to change that's right. him. That's right. It's life-changing. And he will run away. I know someone who goes into cathedrals. Mm. This person and their partner often visit cathedrals around the country and they go into cathedrals and they'll sit. Mm. And this person in particular will sit, maybe light a candle, until they start to feel just the first drop of emotion. Mm. And they get up and walk out. And I just challenge them on that and say, why is it that you, you don't allow that to come through? Because actually there's a fear of what might lay behind what it might expose in your own heart. This is very powerful for me personally because I've just come from a retreat uh, of about four days of principally taken up with that issue Amazing. and why I have difficulty in feeling the love of God wow. in my life wow. and why I'm afraid and all the other reasons. So that's very, for me it's very pertinent. But I think you're right. I think it is at the core of, of the novel. I think it's at the core of Graham Greene's life and his own life he didn't really care about the sins he committed in a sense he, he loved his son. so yes and he, he did because he couldn't resist it quite often particularly fornicating using mm. that word though and i don't feel right using that word i don't <laughs> believe in that word it's not fornication love i would say or giving oneself and i think he didn't feel that so and i think he's very much expressed what he feels about it here mm. that these are the important things this is important what do we think yeah i think um i think every christian has probably felt difficulty with well certainly me um hearing god but at the same time knowing that he loves you i suppose it's difficult to it's a it's it's not it's not often a soft love it's sometimes it can be tough love and like any parent i think there's a good there's a bit in bach cantata if i could quote that which is talking about starker 
Lieben, powerful love. Yeah. Mm. It's a powerful love. It's mm. strong. Yes. Is that in the Lutheran masses? Uh, yeah, it's yes. in one of the classes. Yeah. Jesus is not necessarily a figure of, you know, he can scold people sometimes and he's not always, he's not quite the image that some people like to portray, don't read the Bible that often, of um, mm-hmm. very meek and mild. He actually um, says, I'm a jealous God yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Old Testament. That's and right. of course, Mark's gospel, the cursing of the fig tree. Quite bizarre. Jesus did show his anger very yes. plainly. Mm-hmm. And his conversation with the Pharisees. This week, uh, last <laughs> week, he walks away. St. Nick, your second quote. So for the second quote, it's another long one, I'm afraid. I've gone for another view of a child from this time from the priest's point of view, his own child. That was the difference he had always known between his faith and theirs. The political leaders of the people who cared only for things like the state, the republic. This child was more important than a whole continent. He said, you must take care of yourself because you are so necessary. The president up in the capital goes guarded by men with guns. But my child, you have all the angels of heaven. I thought that was very powerful because, A, there's a completely different concern for individual life or or individual souls that they're worth a whole continent and completely more important than abstract ideas like the state, the republic. Or the church. Or the church. Or ideals like that. You know, the idea of the angels of heaven instead of the guns and the contrast between heaven and earth, I suppose. The idea of necessity, that she's necessary. Mm. Yes. That is so potent. Yes, and even one soul. In one soul, yeah. One soul. It's necessary and important, more important than anything. And he'd stay, and he stays for, he'd stay for one soul. And yeah. I thought that was very moving. Because the priest himself is one soul in this novel, isn't he? He's, he's the moral compass. And he kind of not guides us through it, but he lives it, doesn't he? As long as he's alive, he's keeping that thought, that emotion, that idea alive too. Because that's what's being killed by, yeah. as well as the clerical power and the, the downsides that Graham Greene felt about the church and the hypocrisy and complacency. It's also killing fundamentally the Christian ideals, which are yes. so very important. Yes. And, and that will die with the churches as well. And they do that, obviously, by burning the churches, but also by imposing, a, by imposing an alcoholic prohibition as well as a religious prohibition because that attacked the sacrificial wine. And there's a very difficult scene towards the the sort of three-quarter mark where the priest is trying to get some wine so that he can perform mass. But then, of course, the chief of police comes in and and they start drinking the wine together socially and he watches the last drop drain as if its hope is gone. And that's very potent for me. Yeah, and I think it very much points up this moral bankruptcy doesn't it, that we see comes through the novel uh, all the way. And the bankruptcy of, of ideals. There are the socialist ideals as well. He sees those as bankrupt. But I think he's on the side of the peasants. He's, on, he's trying to show us he's on the side of them by talking about real things like the, the love and the children. But he's still trying to tell us a lot of this is, this is morally bankrupt. There's he's a lot to... of talk of moral bankruptcy, mm-hmm. especially with the false piety yes. point, especially... Mm-hmm. And the fallacy of deathbed repentance, which is another one which hits me. I think one of the great messages in the book is you can't just 
think these things or pretend to outwardly yeah. practice these things or right at the end, even when the gunman, the American, the, the gringo they called yeah. him, was dying, even then he said, you know, if he repents even for a second before he passes the threshold. But there is a consistent theme against false piety and moral bankruptcy. The, the sort of, to put it in the layman's terms, it would be putting your money where your mouth yeah. is. You, you can't just think these things or pretend. You have to do them. You have to put That's into right. practice these beliefs that you extol. And I think when he gets right down to the bedrock in this novel about what he's asking really, what is the value of human life? I think he's saying that this novel really is showing us that everyone is on this quest to have human dignity, mm. aren't they? To remain as a personhood and to remain, to seek that dignity. And he's saying everyone deserves that, mm. no matter what. Going on from the value of human life is an excellent stepping stone into my final quote, which is one which I told you last week, and I'm going to join it up with a quote earlier in the book. Here it is, it's page 133. He had begun to forget that it would ever be another day, just as one forgets that one will ever die. It comes suddenly on one in a screeching break or a whistle in the air, the knowledge that time moves and time comes to an end. That's so, you've oh. introduced the theme now, immortality there it is. for us. Yeah. Right, as promised. And do you recall seeing, reading at the very beginning, there was the image of the vulture? The vulture, I love that. Yes. I mean, Flying that so over the town. Potent. Mm. Here it is. Mm. And that's, what I, that's how I introduced the book to you. I said, look, how read this paragraph. <laughs> look at the vulture. Look at yes, what he's saying. How that's cleverly it. done. Oh, it's wonderful. Isn't it? Because we haven't spoken much about images mm. yet in the novel. I mean, I think that is one that's right there at the beginning. Yeah. And it to, sh to sort of show us how this is going to be that there are many meanings to quite a few of the images that are used, and, and particular things that people not just say, but things that they are. You know, that's, that's used in an image-sick way. Going back to the beginning of the book, just to join, so I'll, I'll remind you what I've just said. The knowledge that time moves and time comes to an end is a consistent theme, as is on page 60, which I've put about three stars around. The priest was reflecting, he said, his mind was full of a simplified mythology. Michael dressed in armor, slew a dragon, and the angels fell through space like comets with beautiful streaming hair because they were jealous. So one of the fathers had said they were jealous of what God intended for men, the enormous privilege of life, yes. this life. Mm. And he's very clever because this heart mm. back to Milton in Paradise Lost, almost directly in that quotation. Satan's ultimate fall was caused by jealousy. Of course. He, he actually wanted God's power and was jealous, so of course he felt like Lucifer. And, and I, that's a direct echo of Paradise Lost. And it's paradise because, again, he's talking here about those ideals. And I think the death, the mortality, is not just the death of the body, He's talking about the death of emotion, isn't he? That's another death. People live all sorts of little deaths, don't they, in the novel? Their ideals are lost, their children are lost, their emotions, they have to cover things up. They have all these deaths before they die. So I think mortality is running right throughout. Of course. It's a huge theme that Seddy's introduced. I'm often 
brought to tears, in fact, daily almost now, at the majesty of what it is to be alive. And it's so important. As you were saying to me, Steve, the other day we were talking about this, it's very alarming to feel a lot of these emotions and then to read a book like this and see them in plain writing in front of you. Someone has put into words precisely how you feel. The enormous privilege of life, this life, because it is a privilege. And a privilege of being able to write like this, to show it to you and for you to recognise it. It's the greatest gift It is the greatest gift. I wish I had it. (laughs) I think Seddi has some of it, but it's an amazing gift and, and he has it. We're only concentrating on one novel here, but I mean, there are some of the other novels he's written are equally wonderful almost. But I think this is one of the most enjoyable mm. as a read as well. We haven't looked at it like that yet, have we? As a good read, yeah. it's a damn good read. It, it, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's quite gripping. Let's yeah. move on from before I tear up. But the yes, enormous... I was just trying to cut that. No, but it's because you know, you know, I'm going to tear up. It's just, oh, it's it's enormous. The enormity of what it is to be alive is so important, and it's lost on so many people. I see every day coasting through, not recognizing the enormous privilege of life. This life, it is amazing. The fact that we're even here, talking, being able to comprehend one another, in such a way to reflect upon the fact that we're alive, to even have the faculty to hear, comprehend and reflect, that's incredible to me. One of the themes he's, I think, is showing, to bring it right back to the novel, is that people learn to live as well, even by dying, and we can connect that very much with something we've been reading recently. Indeed, Sita. Sita, by Kate Millett. And at the end of that, there's this wonderful, great quotation to me, that this woman had suffered much and yet learned how to live. Mm. And I think that's also what he's telling us here, that, you know, you, you live through by suffering. Life is not all about enjoyment, it's suffering yes. as well. And I might be wrong, but I detected in Cedric's line, when I read it, a slight irony to especially this life bit, because throughout the novel it, it's not in a particularly attractive life, there's... No. The disease, the pesos doing terrible revolution, mm. violence, it's hard. death, people mm. die, peasant life, struggle. Mm. Yes. You know, he's lost his um, comfortable priestly life completely. He's now living a really quite dreadful life, which would be difficult for, very difficult for me to live. These it, are people it's, who it's are this life, out, it's not yes, the not perfect it. life, it's not no. the ideal, it's, no. it's this one, That's right. yeah. which we have to be. The imperfect life. We have to consider a gift mm. as imperfect as it is. Yeah. Yeah. So you think this life is sort of rhetorical, in a way? Correct me if I'm wrong, but it says life, and it's a, and then it repeats this life. Mm. The enormous what, privilege of life, this life. This life. This yeah. life, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, yeah. not an ideal life, but this life that he's living, mm. and that they're all living mm. um, yes. in Mexico. Yeah. This life in the world. In the world, yeah. In this, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the imagery before our, our closing reflections. There's a lot going on image-wise. From the beginning, the vulture flying over the city, describing it through its eyes, which is very yes. portentous. Very, and also ominous. a powerful way to do it. Very powerful. It? For example, here he's talking about the lieutenant. His neatness gave an effect of inordinate ambition in a shabby city. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that splendid? <laughs> I mean, this, and also then Mr. 
Tench, is it? Yes, Tench. a dentist. Yes, we haven't mentioned about fun. images and the way people live in this. Because to me, a lot of the images show are to show how, is what you're saying, how people are living. And Mr. Tench, for example, is always trying to get away, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have the means to do it. Yeah, and, do it. You know, and there There's all, a quote here yes, when on, he sees the General Obregon in the beginning, the ships sail away yes, with, the, with the ether yes. to stop the pain yes. because he's a dentist. Of course, he missed the ship because the priest yes. had come to talk to him. He said, he shouted once again and then didn't trouble anymore. It didn't matter so much after all. A little additional pain was hardly noticeable in the huge abandonment. Yes. Because yeah. well, that's another well. theme, is, is isn't it? <laughs> abandonment. Abandonment, abandonment. Yes, being abandoned and abandoning. And people also being abandoned by God, feeling they're abandoned by God. That's another issue. That was an issue for Green as well, personally. Losing and finding. And people in here, in the novel, lose and find. And there's a lot of loss, as you mm. said, Nick. So I think that's an allegory for the relationship with God as well. Yeah. Um, the images are complex because they're not just painted images. You know yeah, how in many true. novels it will be, oh, it was like this. Yeah. They, they're quite complex and they're in, in the form of um, allegories and other things. So they are very complex. And even within the plot line. So there's a great little scene where the priest is starving hungry and comes across a dog with a bone, (laughs) with a bit of meat left on it. And just the standoff and and hearing the priest's self-dialogue, thinking that this isn't just a moment in a novel of fiction, it's a reality for millions in our Mm -hmm. globe. We touched on it just a few seconds ago, and just thinking, actually, if we pull back from the book... Mm -hmm. And we start to think about these images. You know, we talk about this life. Actually, what does that mean for yeah. 7.5 of the 8 billion residents of planet That's Earth, actually? Yeah. Because it's, they're universalism. That's, I think, what makes the novel great. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. This can be recognised at any time. You know, Absolutely. The, des- the desperation at the point <clears throat> of hunger, basic need not met. It's immediately his own hunger and desperation is thrown into sharp relief you think actually that's the worst thing that could happen i'm wrestling a dog for a bone mm. well actually no it's not there's another step here yeah, there's true. another level of desperation it's clever because i think it's contrasting for us the hunger yeah. and basic needs yeah. against spiritual needs that's right i think they're con- compared and contrasted you know what does it profit a man if he does all this and loses himself so you may, even though you're starving, he's still contrasting that with yeah. the need that you might have for spirit. That's right. Coming right down to that. And then that brings us to the title, doesn't it? The Power and the Glory. Yeah. It's on, as the doxology. And the reason that was chosen, because that, you know, it's a, it's a liturgical formula, mm. isn't it? Praising God. I think he very much used that so deliberately because he wants to show us that there is power and glory and agency even though all else seems to be lost. Mm. Because at the end, the end of the priest, we don't know, do we? As I said before, we'd never know. We will never know what the priest actually felt at the moment. He's bringing it back, I think, to what matters. And I think that's why that title is, is chosen. I mean, what, do you, what do you feel about the title? Whose power and glory? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's the question. Are the power and glory separate? Is it the power of the state and the glory of the priesthood at war with one another? Okay. That's another <laughs> thing that's implicit right throughout, isn't it? 
They are fighting it. with each other yeah. constantly. I think that's why it's Mexico in the 30s, the suppression of the church. Why that title from that doxology, why? I just think it's in the mass and it's a Catholic novel, I think. In the end, it's a Catholic novel. It has to be. Yeah. Every novel of Green's is a Catholic novel. Mm. Isn't I, sp- it? I suppose what I would In some way. say about the title maybe it would be the main character, the priest, is in this situation utterly powerless because he's on the run from the state mm. and not particularly glorified in his outward it's appearance. It's an irony. Yeah, the title irony, is ironic. Yeah. Mm. Powerless and not with much dignity yeah. outwardly. It's, the actual meaning of irony, that yeah. he's saying it's this, but actually it's another thing. Something yeah. else. Mm. I think that's why it was chosen, to me. Yeah. Well, we've been on quite a journey today, haven't we? That was a lovely discussion. Yeah. Thoroughly Very good. Yeah. It's a splendid book. I encourage you all to read it. What you said, universalisms, it is universal. Mm. And Nick, it is necessary. And Steve, it is love. It's so many themes, it's so important. And I, I think at the end, I would sum it up with the word necessary. I think it is necessary. It's very important for us as people, whether religious or not, to read such works and to expand our ambit, our understanding. Even if we don't believe in any theodicy, I think it's important to recognise the intense importance of this book it is a catholic novel but it's also universal it speaks to all of us there's something in here for everybody yes and that's what's important there's something in here which will make you stop put the book down and think and yes. perhaps even change well said well summarized well said. so thank you everyone for coming thank you steve thank you thank you saint nick pleasure thank you louise thank you And we'll see you next time for another edition of the Reflective Review. He was conscious of the almost numberless facets of his own personality. And when you see as brightly as he did, and when your imagination is running at that speed, I I think you do begin to feel that you're functioning in a different category of human behavior. And and secrecy is, is actually a very consoling condition for people of that sort.